is a passage we need to look at often. Because even though we sometimes feel divided as Christians, I'm going to show you today on the authority of God's word that we are united in Christ, and, and that's really what's most important. So if you haven't already, please take your Bibles, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at the power of being one in Christ today. And I'm going to read this passage. I'd encourage you to follow along. It is on page 977 of your pew Bibles, if you didn't bring your own Bible today. And it says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, there's some incredible theology there, and all of that rests in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about who Jesus really is and the incredible blessings that we have in that relationship with him. I just want you to realize as we look especially at verse 3 here to begin, we're going to see that Paul is reminding us that we are one. He's not telling us to become one. He's not telling us that if we, if we hype ourselves up that we can be one. No, he's saying very clearly in verse 3 that we are one. He says we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read that again because as he talks about that, he says this. He says we should be eager, we should be diligent, <coughs> some translations say. We should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, some translations say. And however you want to translate that, it says that, that there should be this real desire on our part to keep, to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one Baptist, one God and Father. It doesn't say Baptist. It says baptism, right? <laughs> but sometimes there are groups of Baptists that think that they are the only ones, and yet it says there's one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. I love that passage because Paul just continually tells us that based on the reality of who we are in Christ, we have this opportunity to experience this, this oneness. And, and he goes into some depth about that in all of these groups that he says that, that, that is one, that exists as one thing. Now, now, the first thing he talks about is this one body that we have as believers in Christ, one group that, that God has decided to bring together out of some very unique experiences and very unique people groups that existed at this time. When Paul says that we are part of one body, he's talking about how God brought together the Jewish people who believed that God had brought the Messiah, thanks Chemo, who had God had brought the Messiah into the world, and, and just the reality of the fact that there were other people besides Jewish believers in the world. There were all of the rest of us, the Gentiles. And over in chapter two of Ephesians, verses 11 through 13, Paul talks about that because it says this. It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, in verse 14 of chapter 2, who has made, who's broken down, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
He did this so he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And I'm sure that you have read, and I'm sure that you've heard good messages on the fact that as Jewish believers trusted Christ as their Savior, as they came from the covenant of God had them in Israel to a place of personal belief in Jesus Christ, that they kind of felt that they had a head up on the rest of people who didn't know Jesus. That as they looked at other people coming into the church, other Gentiles who didn't have that same covenantal relationship and understanding of the Old Testament law, that they just felt that they were just a little more loved by God and a little bit more concerned by him. But Paul says, no, he says, you know what, there's only one way to come to faith, it's through the cross of Christ. And God has taken those Jewish believers and those Gentile believers, he's brought them to a place where they both can understand the truth of who Jesus is, and in doing that, they enter into one body, the church of Jesus Christ. They enter into one group of people that is not just a separate group of different denominations or different ethnicities or different backgrounds, but they truly are part of one body because, he says in this passage, there is only one spirit that draws us together. Now, I believe the Bible very clearly teaches us that when a person trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, that he is the gift and he is the one who binds us together as one that there are not two Holy Spirits or not two different situations where we find that we trust Christ first and then we receive the Holy Spirit. No, the Bible just simply tells us that if we don't have God's Spirit, if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we haven't really trusted truly in who Jesus is. And so Paul tells us that this Holy Spirit is the one who indwells each one of us and he is the one who gives us the opportunity to enter into this body called the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. It says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by who? By, by the Spirit of God. And so we enter into one body, the church, through one spirit, and we also have one hope, it says, that belongs to your call. Meaning that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, as we enter into the church, as the Holy Spirit indwells us, that we have the same hope of heaven. That we're not going to different heavens, we're not going to different levels of heaven, we're not going to different places waiting to get into heaven. The Bible never tells us any of that. It just simply says that we have the same future with God and eternal life in heaven, and that is all because of who? Because of Jesus, right? Because of the one Lord. There are not different options on how to get to heaven. There are not different paths up the same mountain to get to God. The Bible tells us, and Jesus himself said, he is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And so we need to realize that even all of chapter one in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the joy of who Jesus is, of what he offers us in eternal life, of the fact that when we enter into that relationship, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing that God wants to lavish incredible things upon us. And as God gives us the opportunity to know Jesus and follow Jesus, we enter into that relationship with one Lord and there is only one faith that gets us there. Now, sometimes scholars disagree about whether this is talking about a specific private faith that each of us have to exercise or or whether this is talking about just the reality that we have to have faith. Now, as I read through the Bible and as I see that it presents both of those things, that 
There is only one way to heaven through one Savior, Jesus, and we all must exercise personal faith. I think Paul and God in his sovereignty through this passage is telling us that we have the opportunity to believe in the same way through the one God entering into one body with one spirit, having one hope with one Lord through one faith. And yes, there is this thing called baptism that God tells us when we truly trust in Jesus, when we truly have this faith in him, counting on who he is and what he's done for us to get to heaven, we should show that publicly, right? I mean, that's one of the great things about being part of a church like this, is that as the gospel is proclaimed, as people truly trust Christ, I know that you're encouraged to declare that faith publicly in baptism, and I know that as many of you have done that and shown the outward indication of that inward reality of who Jesus is in your life, that you've had the opportunity to say, hey, I believe he's my savior. I believe I've trusted in him alone as the one who gives me eternal life. And, and as some people look at this as baptism outwardly through water, showing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or whether they look at it as seeing that the Spirit of God brings us into a relationship with him. Through that spirit baptism, we realize that Paul brings this verse to a close and this passage to a, a poignant place where he says that we worship one God and Father. Now, I want you to see the theology in this because he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is, of all rather, who is over all and through all and in all. And in that, Paul is showing us the reality of the fact that we worship one God, not three gods, but one God who has shown himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who is sovereignly over all. You see that in the passage? A God who lives through us, through his Son, Jesus, who wants his life to be shown through every one of our lives, and a God who is in us through the power of his Spirit, that in every one of our lives, friends, we are to show the reality of our relationship with God, believing that there's a sovereign creator who cares for us, and Loved us so much he came from heaven in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's done that, he offers eternal life to all of us who believe. And when we believe, the power of his Holy Spirit comes into our lives and not only just lives there and resides there and shows up on Sunday mornings, but he's supposed to be showing himself through every aspect of our lives, every attitude of our lives, every day of our lives. So our neighbors see Jesus, our coworkers see Jesus, our friends see Jesus. Our families see Jesus. I mean, all of this is the theology that Paul has talked about in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3. As he finally gets here to chapter 4, I go into even those details because he's telling us that we are to keep the unity of the Spirit. Meaning that since there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father that we worship. Doesn't it kind of make sense to think that we are part of something bigger than just our own personal relationship to Jesus, obviously, and, and even just bigger than the local congregation that we're part of or what God might be doing in a certain region or state or area or county? I mean, we need to remember that this is really an admonition, not just a theology lesson, where Paul says, maintain, keep, be diligent, I urge you, to make sure that you understand that you are one with other people and you are to keep that through the bond of peace. Meaning that, again, we don't create unity, but we keep the unity that has already existed 
that still exists, even though we might have different personalities and differences with other people, and, and we do feel divided sometimes, because we are to lovingly and carefully appreciate, not just tolerate, but appreciate, to maintain, to keep the unity that we have in Christ, and all of this comes around a clear understanding of the gospel, doesn't it? Now, I've talked about that already as, as we talk about the fact that there is this oneness in Christ. But, but if you're here today and this is kind of just kind of rolling through your head and you're thinking, you know, what does this all really mean? Let me just tell you that, that the most important message that we proclaim anytime we worship, anytime we preach, anytime we gather together as Christians is, is the fact that, that God loves us so much that he wants to give us the gift of eternal life. See, the Bible tells us that all of us are separated from God because of our sin. The Bible tells us that, that we deserve punishment because of that sin. But the Bible also tells us that God cared for us so much that he determined, even before the foundations of the earth, to pay the penalty for our sin. And so he became man through the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came from heaven in the form of Jesus, in the image of God, in order for us to understand who he is, and as he came and taught us how to live in this world, he also did the most incredible thing he could possibly do. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself, and he died to take the judgment that each one of us deserve. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Matter of fact, it would be like if you had cancer in your body, and somehow I could take that cancer out of your body and literally physically put it in my body and die in your place. That's what Jesus did for the penalty of our sin. And as he died to pay that penalty, he offers us eternal life as a free gift. He conquered death. He rose from the dead. He was buried. He rose again. He's alive today, and he offers eternal life to all of us who believe. He just simply asks that, that we trust in him, that we have this faith in him that we've talked about, that we believe in who he is and what he's done. And just like you're trusting these chairs to hold you up or you trusted your car this morning to turn on when you got into it or you trust me to be done around 10 o'clock this morning or whenever I'm supposed to finish, that whenever that is, you and I have some sense of faith and trust in so many aspects of our lives. But the greatest aspect of trust we can ever proclaim and live and, and espouse is that trust that Jesus died for our sins personally and that we trust him to give us the gift of eternal life. Now, if there's never been a time in your life where you've done that, that's the most important message you need to hear today because everything that I say revolves around that. Every, every message that I believe we should preach revolves around that. And, and the message and the mission of this church is to proclaim that truth of Jesus. I mean, we prayed this morning that we would proclaim the risen Christ from everything that happens in this pulpit today. And that is so important and so necessary, and yet... Let's admit that sometimes churches get off track with that message. And let's admit that sometimes we don't keep that message focused the way we should. And let's admit that sometimes we kind of even get judgmental about other Christians who may disagree about some areas of theology or some areas of doctrine that may be different than some of the convictions that we have. Now, there's a Christian comedian that tells this story that maybe you've heard before, but he says this. He says, once I saw this guy in a bridge about to jump, and so I ran over and yelled, don't jump, but he said, nobody loves me, and I said, God loves you. I said, do you believe in God? He said, yes, and I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, me too. I said, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? And he said, I'm a Protestant. I said, me too. He said, what franchise? He said, Baptists, and I said, me too. 
I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, oh, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. And then I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over the bridge. You see, we need to realize that sometimes we get refocused on things that aren't necessarily as important as the gospel, as the main points of doctrine that remind us who God is and how he's revealed himself in the world and his word. And, and sometimes we as Christians can divide. You get that idea, don't you? But I want you to realize that this passage tells us that we can't create unity. It simply tells us that we can either maintain it or we can mess it up. It tells us that we either decide that we're going to live under the truth of the gospel and the reality of God's word in every aspect of our lives and we're not going to fuss about some of the things that other Christians may have different perspectives on, but we need to realize that as we come to Christ, we are united with many, many people even though they may have some different perspectives about us. Now, I want you to realize that every time we talk about trusting Christ, every time we talk about being a Christian, that uh, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is, all right? I mean, please don't hear something I'm not saying today. That Christianity is not just belief in a doctrine. It's not just a set of actions of religion. Christianity is, is turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. It's, it's believing wholly that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin. We're trusting him. Not everybody who says they're a Christian really is, but there are people who have different perspectives than us that, that truly are trusting Christ. And when somebody comes to faith in Christ, we join together, not just with other believers that live and exist right now, with other people that may worship God with other adjectives over their church doors, but but we've joined with apostles and evangelists and church fathers and church mothers and priests and monks and reformers and rebels and kings and commoners and people that have lived before us and people that will come after us who truly have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, truly have trusted him. And therefore, once again, we need to realize that we cannot create unity. We just enter into the unity that God has already established and we are part of the kingdom that God has been building since, since the beginning of that building time and from the very time Jesus said to Peter that the confession of his faith is the rock on which his church would be built in Matthew 16. We've joined with Jewish believers and Italian believers and Haitian believers and, and Ethiopian believers and Egyptian believers to, to come to a place where we all truly are trusting Christ and therefore doesn't it make sense that we should want to show that unity and we should want to live in that unity and we should make the gospel the most important thing instead of some of the things that are so distinguishing among us. Now, Mark Deaver says it better than I can. He says that we should unite around he who unites us instead of the things that distinguish us because lots of different groups of Christians have wonderful distinguishing marks and this church does and Converge does and other groups do. But, but I think Lori, my wife, says it better than I do. She says, you know what? If we're going to live together in heaven someday with all the people who truly trust Christ, doesn't it make sense that we'd want to get to know them a little bit down here? 
doesn't it make sense that we want to join with them and, and show the love of Jesus with them and, and live as one in doing that? Now, now, that's why Paul says, back in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called. He is referring again to all the things that have taken place back in chapters one through three. He's literally saying, I'm on bended knee. That's what that word urge means in the original language. And he says that I want you to make sure that you have understood this calling that you've received, this relationship that you have with Jesus, and make sure that you live your life or you walk in a manner that shows that you really believe that there is this thing called unity in Christ. And and that's really our commitment at Converge, the Baptist General Conference. I mean, that's who we are because Converge was created out of a group of people that were being persecuted for not being able to read their Bibles, to publicly proclaim the truth of Jesus in Sweden in the 1850s, not being allowed to gather in their homes together in a time that was called the Pietistic Movement where, where they were doing the things that we say we wanna do today, right? I mean, preach the gospel, study our Bibles, gather in homes, show our faith publicly by baptism, and that group of people then came to the United States because they wanted not only to escape the persecution that they had during that time in Europe, but they wanted to, to start churches, and they wanted to strengthen people, and they wanted to send missionaries back so other people around the world would, would know the truth of who Jesus is. That's who our family of churches is, the Baptist General Conference. We believe in the Bible as God's word, that Jesus is God's son, that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone. I mean, those are the fundamentals of what we believe. We have about 12 different doctrinal points that point out who Jesus is and who God the Father is and who the Holy Spirit is and who the church is. We just believe the Bible is God's authority and that we must live our lives for Jesus and show people around us who Jesus is. And over and over again, as we talk about the 1,300 local congregations we have in the United States, and as we talk about missionaries like J.J. and Melissa Alderman that are part of Converge, that are in other countries starting churches, and as we talk about those people that gather all over the world, you know what we still come back to is that there, there is just one church. There is the church of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the most important thing. And again, no matter what kind of name we give to whatever group that we're part of, that the most important name we espouse is the name of Jesus because he's our savior and he's our Lord and everything else is subsidiary to that commitment. Now, uh, this is not a commercial for Converge, okay? I came to preach the word to you today. I just want you to know that, again, it is an honor for you to be considering becoming part of our church family. And I know that some of you have already read things about Converge. I know that I'll answer any questions I can for you after the second service today. I just want you to know, if you want to continually find out what God is doing in our region and in our movement of churches on this website, you can write it down, you can Google it. If you think I'm boring, you can go to it right now and you can sign up in the corner to be part of a thing that comes out every week from Converge called the Converge Newsline. It gives information and updates about starting and strengthening churches and sending missionaries. And there's also a little place in the corner where you can decide if you want to receive this magazine every quarter called the Converge Point Magazine 
Because again, as you consider becoming part of this movement, this family of churches, Converge, the Baptist General Conference, I want you to know who we are and I want you to know who you are. And I want you to see that God is doing things, incredible things, in New England, in the Northeast, in the Eastern United States, and across this country, and around the world, and you are and continue, can continue to be part of that in so many wonderful ways. Because as we have fully dedicated men and women who, who, who are ministering the gospel literally around the world, and as we have new churches that are ready to start, and we have established churches that are doing some really cool ministry, I know that you have the same kind of commitments that we do, and I realize that committing to working with other good gospel-preaching churches is really a privilege for all of us because Osterville Baptist is not the only gospel-preaching church on Cape Cod, is it? And it's not the only church in the country. It's not the only church in the world. It's, it's maybe the best one, but <laughs> it's not the only one, and we need to realize over and over again that I really believe churches should work together, that we should want to know other believers. And as we have wonderful distinctives and wonderful heritages and wonderful history, we can do that if we do what Paul says, back to the text, because he says how we do this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. See, Paul says that we can walk in unity, we can maintain the unity that we have if we truly are completely humble. See, pride does not promote unity. And we have to be gentle because we shouldn't get mean or harsh or rude when we don't get our own way or we disagree with people about things. And we should be patient, shouldn't we? We don't give up when things don't go well. We don't take our bat and go home whenever somebody has a difference of opinion in a church or or a group of people together. No, it says if we're humble, if we're gentle, if we're patient, then we maintain the unity, which really isn't a bad lesson for other parts of life either, is it? I mean, if I'm humble and gentle and patient in my marriage, probably have a pretty good chance of communicating and working through problems. If I'm humble and gentle and patient with the people around me in a neighborhood or workplace that I might disagree with. Chances are that we can find some common ground. If I'm humble and I'm gentle and I'm patient with, with even Christians, whenever something happens in church and something inevitably happens in churches where Christians start to fuss with each other, then we can work through those issues and deal with them. But if not, if we decide not to ultimately bear with one another in love, we've not only thrown out what Jesus told us we're all about, but we've really shot ourselves in the foot too because God wants us to live this life of unity. I mean, think of John 13, 34 to 35, where Jesus said, by, all, by this rather, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Or John 15, where he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Or, or John 17, verses 20 and following, where Jesus prays for us, people who had come to Christ, through the train of the disciples' message of the gospel. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so they also may be one in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. See how much is riding on this? That as we love each other, as we show our unity in Christ, that's how the world sees that this stuff is real. Not when we fuss and fight and divide or... or demand our own way, but 
when we realize that the one way, the way of Jesus, is the way that we want to proclaim the truth of who he is to others, we realize we don't exist for ourselves, we exist for him, and we exist so other people will come to know him and follow him. And I want you to realize that that is our message, that is Jesus' message. That's why it's so important for us to make sure that we maintain the unity of the Spirit and we do everything we possibly can not to mess it up. A couple years ago, in February 15th of 2015, as a matter of fact, the news said that there were 21 Coptic Christians that were murdered. You may remember the story. You may have it foggily in the back of your mind somewhere. But it said on February 15th, Christians throughout the world will remember the courage and religious fortitude of the 21 martyred Coptic Christians from February 15th, 2015. They were put to death in Libya at the hands of terrorists for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you do or don't remember that story, the interesting thing about that is that there were 21 men executed that day, traveling tradesmen working on a construction job, and all were native Egyptians except one. The headline said 21 Coptic Christians, but only 20 of those men were beginning to be followers of Jesus Christ. And it says the murder of that one man would become the extremist greatest failure because captured without resistance and paraded before cameras, the executioners demanded that each man identify his religious allegiance. And when given the chance to deny Christ and possibly live with a knife literally held to their throats, each one of the brave Coptic Christians declared that they believed in the name of Jesus Christ as their savior. And they were executed. The Coptic church in Egypt is the traditional church. It's, it, it's not the evangelical group of Christians that, that even people who deal with people in Egypt today would say are the fundamentalists, are, are the evangelicals, are, are the committed believers. But these 20 guys who literally had a chance to give up and live declared their faith in Jesus. And as they did that through the last part of their lives and through the last week that they lived, this one other man from Chad, who is not a Christian, whenever he began to work with these guys, witnessed the dedication of those 20 guys to Jesus Christ. He remained with his co-workers, and in his last words, he said this. He said, I stand with my brothers. I declare my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ too. I mean, because of their testimony, because of a group of Christians from a non-evangelical, non-fundamental group who literally gave their lives for Christ and lived their lives for Christ before that, this guy from Chad said, I want what they have. I want to believe what they believe. I, too, am willing to give my life because I believe so much that this is the truth, this is the way to heaven, and this is what he did by giving his life. And rather than going free, this guy lived to a point of his martyrdom because of the faith of others. See, I think that's amazing, friends, because over and over again, sometimes you and I get so caught up in our own lives that we forget every action of our life is to declare the truth of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that, that people are watching us, where we work, where we live, what we say, what we do, the attitudes that we express, and we forget that the, when it all comes down to the end of life, what really matters is whether we've trusted Jesus Christ and whether we're willing to trust in him for eternity. So today in this building, as the future leads you and your families, with your friends, and your neighborhood, and as this church, whatever else you decide to do about whatever group of people you connect with and whoever you work with, live for Jesus, stand for Jesus.
trust in Jesus and realize that power that we have together is one. Let's bow our heads and let's ask him to do that, please. Father, I